Help us, God, to be attentive to you. Though we are connecting through the internet, uh, we know that you are with us. We know that your word is true, that it is reliable, that it is trustworthy, that it is good, and that in it and through it, we meet you and we hear from you. Help us to have ears that are able to hear, hearts that are good and fertile soil to receive your word. I pray and ask that as my words are true to your word, may they be taken to heart. If my words deviate or stray or are inconsistent with your word in any way, may they be immediately forgotten. We pray in Christ the Lord. Amen. So 2,000 years ago, Jesus arrived on the scene, and in doing so, fulfilling a variety of prophecies in his coming, in his arrival, and in his ministry. Uh, From the beginning, he talked about, he made visible this thing that he called the kingdom of God, or the rule of God, or the reign of God. He said that the kingdom of God was near, that it was arriving, that it was available, that it was accessible to people right there in their lives, in their body, in their neighborhoods, in their world that day in their relationships, in Jesus, this kingdom, in Jesus, who was both fully God and fully man, in Jesus, this kingdom was coming, the uniting of heaven and earth in time and space, a reality and an event that Jesus called continually the kingdom of God. And among, among the things that Jesus said characterized the kingdom of God was loving God with all of one's heart, mind, soul, and strength, and loving one's neighbor as one loved oneself. And Jesus united those two things and made them one. He made them inseparable even. He said you can't love God without loving also your neighbor, and you can't love your neighbor without also loving God. In fact, it is through loving one's neighbor that one loves God. It is as one loves one's neighbor that one loves God. It is by loving one's neighbor that one loves God. And then one day Jesus was asked, well, who is my neighbor? In response to which Jesus told the most amazing story, the end of which showed that the person least like oneself is often one's neighbor. The person who is different, the person who dwells on the other side of the tracks, the person against whom one has been prejudiced or held a grudge or looked down upon, the person who is in front of you in need and with need, that person is your neighbor. That person in that moment is your neighbor, that one that we are called by Jesus unequivocally to love. And then Jesus raised the bar a little bit more in that because Jesus wanted his disciples to know how much, how and how much his father loved them. And so remembering that, Jesus raised the bar and so spoke these words to his disciples, which we read last week and which I think, given the world in which we live in today, are worth reading again and again. From the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5, beginning to read at verse 43. Listen closely to Jesus. This is the word of God. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. This is the way to be or become children of the Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good alike and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous alike. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not 
even the tax collectors doing that. And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Therefore, be perfect or be perfect in love. Be perfectly mature in love as your heavenly Father is perfect in love. And yes, Jesus surely raised the bar and Jesus here was at his most unique He said something no one else had ever said. He taught something no one else had ever taught. And even scholars today who are most skeptical of the authenticity of different parts of the Gospels and of different sayings that belong to Jesus, even those scholars believe that this is authentic Jesus. This is who Jesus was. And his disciples got it. For example, now fast forward 25 years. The Apostle Paul is writing one of his last and maybe most important letters to the small community of Christians who were in Rome. And for 11 chapters, Paul systematically describes the truths of the gospel step by step, layer by layer, constructing this magnificent structure of who and how God is and how God has been with people and related to people since the beginning of time, climbing to the highest peaks from which everything is visible, everything is clear, and having reached this theological pinnacle of God's sovereign goodness and grace, Paul then begins chapter 12 with these words. Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. In other words, to offer your full selves, no longer offer the bodies of goats and bulls and birds, but offer yourself to God in and as worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, which is to love one's neighbors and hate one's enemies. But instead be transformed by the renewing of your mind or the renewal of one's mind. Then you'll know what God's will is. Then it will be crystal clear. Then you will know the way and then you will be drawn into it and you'll want to live it. And so finally, after 11 chapters of building a base or a foundation, and then those two transition verses we've just read at the beginning of chapter 12, Paul finally begins to articulate what a grateful response to God's grace and mercy looks like and what God's good, pleasing, and perfect will looks like lived out. And it looks like love. Fast forwarding to verse 9. Love, it must be sincere. Paul knows that love is the chief attribute of God's kingdom because it's the chief attribute of the king. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. And then comes the really good and important part. Bless those who persecute you, which sounds a lot like Jesus. 
Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. No more eye for eye and tooth for tooth. Yes, permission is granted for such several times in the Old Testament. But Paul, with Jesus, knows the better way. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. Be done with revenge. Be done with it. And with grudges and repayment. If there's going to be revenge, that is God's business. That's not ours. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And all of this is under the heading of what God's good, pleasing, and perfect will is, which is characterized by love, which is characterized by what is sincere, and which is available in seemingly endless quantities to people who have been to the top of the mountain and who have seen and understand the grandeur of God's mercy and grace for them. The way of human nature and the way of the world is repaying evil for evil. That we believe is fair. That we believe is justice. That we believe is what people deserve. But we ourselves can't bear the weight of such justice. We haven't. We can't. We don't have to, though, in Jesus, who somehow bore that penalty of sin and so justice for us in his death on a cross. We ourselves can't bear the penalty of such justice. And so why would we wish it on others? Why would we place that on others? Don't do it, Paul wrote. Don't repay evil for evil, even indirectly, even slyly, even subtly, even in small ways, even subversively. Don't do it, Paul says. Don't be that kind of person. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to eat. I think uh, we sometimes behave as if, well, if I just ignore my enemies, or if I'm ambivalent toward my enemies, or if I pretend like they are not there, that's what God is calling us to, Jesus called us to, Paul is writing about. That we can ignore them and and go on, but Paul says something different. He says, on the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. The year was 2016, on the outskirts of Fallujah in Iraq, just weeks after the Islamic State had been driven out of the city by the Iraqi army. Following two years of jihadist rule, a team of Sunni and Shia Muslims visited visited a compound where hundreds of people who had fled the city were being held. They brought supplies, food and water to those cramped into tiny space as would be expected by humanitarian organizations working in the region. 
Aid groups have been working there tirelessly in Iraq and Syria since ISIS' devastating campaign first shocked the world in 2014, serving the most needy and vulnerable on the front lines. But something about this was different here. The recipients of this aid weren't the families who had been traumatized by militants, who had spent years living in fear and then weeks trapped, starving, as Fallujah became a battleground between government and ISIS forces. No, these were ISIS fighters. A team from Preemptive Love Coalition, PLC, a U.S.-Iraqi nonprofit organization that's been active in the Middle East for 10 years, took food and water to ISIS militants, providing respite to those who had been captured as Fallujah fell. Hundreds of suspected ISIS members were being held in the detainment compound not far from the city. Some would have been innocent men and boys separated from their families as they fled Fallujah and sent for interrogation by the Iraqi army. Others were confirmed militants. All were given food to eat and water to drink by the representatives of PLC. Matthew Willingham, a follower of Jesus and PLC's senior field editor who's based in Iraq, wasn't able to take part in the aid drop in early August. But he was watching on a live video feed. The highly sensitive nature of this event meant that only Iraqi Muslims could enter that compound, and among them was a member of PLC's aid team named Sadiq. Sadiq gave water to a bound-up prisoner dressed in a yellow jumpsuit. You just saw the photo of that. Who he recognized from an ISIS propaganda video posted online. This man, a tribal sheik loyal to Islamist State, had stood and watched as a friend of Sadiq's was brutally executed. You killed my friend, Sadiq said, as he poured water into the man's mouth. But I've come here to feed you. Willingham said that they had been warned against the trip by Iraqi leaders and even friends who told them they'd gone too far this time. The detainees deserved to suffer after what they had done. But we believe, Willingham wrote, that only light can drive out light. And love is the real answer to hate. And so we went anyway. When Sadiq and his fellow Muslim colleagues delivered aid to the Fallujah detainees, prisoners openly wept. One of the most striking things to me about the delivery in particular, this delivery, Willingham said, was seeing the intense emotion in the faces of those men. They were just overwhelmed, many of them, with guilt. While the team had been expecting an aggressive reception, a resistant reception, they were instead greeted with row upon row of broken men. When Sadiq spoke to a group of convicted ISIS members, some of them jihadi leaders, they broke down weeping. They kept saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm sorry, Willingham recalls. Love has the power to convict. Love has the power to cure. Love has the power to heal. Love has the power to reconcile. On the contrary, the Apostle Paul wrote, if your enemy is hungry, 
feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. And Paul continues quoting a line from Proverbs 25, which is where verse 20 comes from. Continuing, he writes, In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And the imagery of heaping burning coals on someone's head grabs our attention, and it doesn't sound like something a person would do towards something or to someone that a person cares about. Though you and I have probably a number of times felt like heaping burning coals on the head of someone who made us mad, someone who made us angry, someone who hurt us, someone who wounded us, someone who offended us, someone who made us upset. But the imagery of a burning coal here, as also in Isaiah's call in Isaiah 6 and in Malachi, as well as in extra-biblical literature, associates burning coals with repentance and with prompting someone to repent and with the removing of a person's guilt from that person, from an overcoming, with an overcoming of evil. The idea and the hope is that by responding to evil with good, the doer of the evil may be brought to repentance and be reconciled. It is the enemy's benefit which is intended. When the adversary is treated with kindness, when good is returned for evil, then evil may overcome, be overcome. The antagonist may be transformed by a renewing of his or her mind. A change of orientation from darkness to light. That's what's in mind here with this imagery of a coal. People are not changed by punishment. People are not changed by judgment. People are not changed by retribution. People are changed by love. On the contrary... If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And so who are your enemies? Who are my enemies? Who are you called to feed? Who are you called to give something to drink? Some of us have more enemies than others of us. For some of us, our threshold for enemyhood is pretty low. It's pretty easy to qualify in our world, our lives, our minds. Enemies arise from circumstances in our lives and from the choices of our lives. Circumstances are often beyond a person's control. A person may be assaulted, cheated, abused, labeled unfairly, hated, disliked for any number of reasons, including because we're at the wrong place at the wrong time. On the other hand, choices are within our control. No one can be our enemy and remain our enemy unless we choose that for them. I'll say that again. No one can be our enemy and remain our enemy unless we choose that for them. Someone else may label us as their enemy, but no one can be our enemy without our consent. Are you with me? Our enemies may be family members or former family members. Our, may, our enemies may be coworkers or bosses or employees or former coworkers, bosses, employees. They may be neighbors who invade our space, make our life difficult, disturb our peace, or offend our preferences. Assailants who harm our families, steal our possessions, take away our rights, or assault our bodies. But anyone who is our enemy is our enemy because we have allowed them to become so or we have allowed them to remain so. Are you with me? 
They may be adversaries, they may be competitors in sports, in business, in romance, in law, in religion, in politics, and more and more often in politics. A group of researchers recently diagrammed how members of the U.S. House of Representatives voted from 1949 through 2011. And here are the images they came up with. In the 1950s, 60s, 70s, and even into the 80s, there was some overlap and some middle ground in the way that Democrats and Republicans voted. But by the 90s and into the 2000s, a fairly intensive polarization had happened. We became a nation of adversaries, unlike our nation had experienced unless one goes all the way back to the 1850s. And you know what was going on then. But what are we going to do with these people who have become our enemies and which news media outlets and social media only exacerbate and throw gasoline on that fire? If we hate our enemies, we will become and we will remain people filled with hate, disdain, disgust, contempt. And our enemies will remain our enemies but if, on the other hand, we decide in the grace of God and by the prompting of God's Spirit and the power of God's Spirit in us to love our enemies, there is hope for us and there is hope for them. And it takes a decision. We can't rely on our emotions. Love, for the most part, is not an emotion, except maybe in the very earliest stages of a romantic relationship, but instead it's a decision and we desperately need to decide for our own sakes to love those who seem impossible to love or unworthy of our love. Otherwise, our hearts decay from the inside out. We are made for love. Tomorrow's Memorial Day, a day on which we particularly remember with gratitude the men and women who have lost their lives, given their lives in service to our country and the sake of freedom. This has also reminded me of something I read recently about the Vietnam War, the Vietnam conflict, the Vietnam police action. Let's call it a war. Apparently at one point during the war, as many as 20% of the American soldiers were hooked on the drug heroin, which is the most addictive of all illicit illegal drugs out there, was and is. And so when those soldiers came home hooked on heroin, something interesting, amazing happened. And social scientists and doctors in the medical world were amazed. All of those soldiers who came, came home hooked on heroin 95% of them were able to go cold turkey and drop it immediately, which is just not seen, which is just not done, which just doesn't happen. And wanting to know why that happened and what caused that and how that was possible, a bunch of researchers got together and they discovered that the receptors in our brain that were being fed by heroin are the receptors that we need filled and met by love. And so when the soldiers came home and connected again with their parents and with their wives and with their children and with their friends and with their loved ones and were again immersed in communities of love and relationships of love, they didn't need heroin anymore. It had no purpose. It had no meaning. It had no reason in their lives. And so we are made for love. We are made to love. 
We are made by a God who is love, and being made in his image means that love is who we're all about in our nature. Though there's something in us that resists that, that pushes back, that wants to paint people as enemies, that doesn't want to love, though we know we need it. A story from the first century catacombs in Rome. A rich man named Proculus had hundreds of slaves. The slave named Paulus was so trustworthy that Proculus made him the steward over his whole household. One day Proculus took Paulus with him to the slave market to buy some new workers, more slaves. Before the bargaining began, they examined the men to see who among them were strong, who among them were healthy. Among the slaves stood a clearly weak old man, and Paulus urged his owner to buy that slave. Proculus answered, but he's not good for anything. Go ahead and buy him, Paulus insisted. He is cheap, and I promise that the work in your household will get done even better than before if you buy him. So Proculus agreed and purchased the elderly slave, and Paulus made good on his word. The work went better than ever in the household, but Proculus observed that Paulus now worked for two men. The old slave did no work at all while Paulus tended to him, gave him the best food, and made him rest. Proculus was curious, so he confronted Paulus. Who is this slave? You know I value you. I don't mind your protecting this old man, but tell me, who is he? Is he your father who has fallen into slavery? Paulus answered, it is someone to whom I owe more than to my father. Your teacher then, Proculus asked. Know someone to whom I owe even more than that. Who then? Proculus asked. To which Paulus replied, this is my enemy. Your enemy? Yes. He is the man who killed my father and sold us, my brothers and sisters, into slavery. Proculus stood speechless. As for me, Paulus said, I am a disciple of Jesus who has taught us to love our enemies and to reward evil with good. That's not an easy thing for me. I failed on it a number of times this week. I let my emotions dictate my responses. John Gottman, who heads up an institute for marriage and the University of Washington in Seattle, says that what you should always do in a marriage relationship is when you feel something that's just not loving, to say five things to your spouse that are loving before you say that thing that treats them like an enemy. And it's usually the case that by the time one consciously decides to say five loving things, there are no enemy words left to say. A professor went to one of the best known spiritual directors in the world today. Went to where he lived, went up on his mountaintop and asked him a question he'd been dying to ask. 
How do I love those who oppose me? How do I love those who are unworthy? How do I love those who are unlovable? How do I love those who are incorrigible? How do I love those who are simply criminal in behavior? How do I love those who I cannot love? To which the spiritual director said, respond warm-heartedly. And to which the professor said, do you have any other options? Love is a decision that becomes a habit. The way that the world will be healed, the way that you and I will be healed, the way that our lives will be transformed through the renewing of our minds is through deciding to do what a part of us absolutely doesn't want to do. Can't justify, doesn't have any interest in, but is the only way. It is the way of Jesus. It's the way that he taught. It's the way that he lived. It's the way that he exhibited the kingdom or the reality or the realm of God as he hung on a cross. There is hope for the world. There is hope for our politics. There is hope for the Twitterverse. There is hope for social media. When and as we return evil with good. When we see our enemies who are thirsty and we give them a drink. When we see enemies who are hungry and we feed them. May God give us the spiritual resources to become those kind of people. And when and as we do, we will become children of our Father in heaven. Let's pray. God, allow uh, the people we think of as enemies to move through our minds. Help us to think of them and remind us how we have thought of them and renew our minds. Help us to think differently, to repent about the ways that we have thought about the people on the other side the ones who have hurt us, the ones who annoy us, the ones who anger us. Prepare us to give them a drink of water. Prepare us to feed them meals. Prepare us to meet their needs. Prepare us to exhibit the kind of love that you exhibited to us in Jesus and the kind of love that heaven has for earth still today. May your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.